right, so I have a question for you, and it's a simple question that you're going to answer with someone next to you. Um, so Thanksgiving's coming up, Christmas coming up. Just want to gauge, when you guys have Thanksgiving with your family, how many people, ballpark, usually will come? Some of you will be in the 30s. We already did this in our first teacher service. Some will be in the single digits, but how big is your family that usually gathers? And would you turn to someone next to you, just throw out a number. You don't have to talk menu. You don't have to explain everything. Around how many people, all right? All right. Yeah, some of you are explaining your menus and who brings what and my dad's side, you know, and there's one crazy uncle, my aunt's side, my mom's side, you know. But um, anyone here, um, you could just show your hands. Anyone over 20? You can, it's like kind of big family, right? Yeah. Um, you're not raising your hand because you're afraid we're all going to come over and you won't know. But if you have a lot. Now, you might have had the situation where there's a bunch of people and a lot of kids gathered. And you ever catch yourself telling the kids, hey, hey, kids, 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 kids. You know, the football game's on. The adults are trying to talk. Kids, 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 why don't you go outside and play? You ever hear that? You ever say that? You ever heard that when you were little and some grandpa or uncle or someone says, go outside and play? I mean, you think about that uh, suggestion or command. It's very difficult. What do you mean to do outside? Like, basically, they're saying, go get lost. Like, I need to see the uh, Lions game. I need to see the whatever, whoever's on playing football, like, go outside and play. You cannot play until you have some kind of rules. You cannot play until you have a goal. I mean, even when you play pickup basketball, you define the rules before you play. What are we playing up till? Okay, who gets to take the ball out? All right, how many of us are going to be playing? And you make up the rules before you play. If I tell you, hey, let's play a game, and we don't have any boundaries, we don't have any rules, and there is no goal, and just two people are like, let's just play. It becomes kind of a dance party. I don't know, like, what do you play? And that's the kind of the argument that Paul is making here. He's talking about living a gospel-focused life, that you're living this out, and you want to share this with those around you, the good news of Jesus Christ. That this is the philosophy you adhere to for your life. And so he says, when it comes to the gospel in your life, treat it like a race. And he uses the analogy of a race. Last week, Pastor John touched upon this. Today, we're going to dive deeper into this analogy. You know, the idea of a race, the people in Corinth would see this during the big competitions and even the Olympics and so on, and they would see the race, and they understood this concept. And we understand that as well. And what we read is, hey, if you're going to run, everyone runs, but run like the person who's going to win the prize. And the, what, the person, the champion that wins the prize, all of their costs, all of their hardships, waking up early and disciplining themselves, it was all worth it. And he's saying, get the point of the race. So he's not telling us to become athletic or play more games, but he's telling us to live out the gospel. Share the gospel with others. As he said in the previous sections, I have become all things to all men, to win some for Jesus. He wants to win people over to Christ. That is the goal of his life, and he's saying, I want you to have that goal as well. 
to live out the gospel, to share the gospel in this manner. Today we look at this idea of a race. And the race is the walk that we have before us, the life that we all live as Christians. And we're going to be looking at this race. First of all, we have to choose the right race. There are many races. There are many things that draw your attention, and many people are running. They're running hard. And it says here, verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? It's a picture of everyone just running frantically, but there is someone who is running to the goal. There is someone who runs with purpose. Other people are just going for a jog. Other people are going for exercise. Other people are doing this just as a group activity that we can go and enjoy this together. But he says run in in a certain way to win the race. So there are many different races out there. But there is a race as a follower of Jesus that is before you, and there is nothing casual about it. There's nothing that is on and off about it. This is your life. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run, and it says at the end, with endurance the race that is set before us. There is a race set before you, and it is to run the race For the gospel of Jesus Christ, as a Christian, we who live here in Orange County with so much uh, at our disposal, we are often distracted and we run the wrong race. It is Os Guinness who said, people in the secular world have too much to live with, too little to live for. And I don't know if this is true for you or this is true for the people around you. They have too much to live with. They have too many options, they have too many things, they have too many hobbies, they have too many passions, but they have too little to live for. We are people who are called to live and run this race. You know, just recently the movie star from the popular 90s show Friends passed away, Matthew Perry. Uh, 50, he was, I think, 54 They said that even from the TV shows that were airing now, he was making something like 20 million was coming in a year just from the repeats of the shows that he did in the 90s. Now, if we pause and think for a moment, if I could have all the things that someone like that had, good looking and fame, being adored even by strangers, um, to have, get paid. Imagine getting paid for the work you did during the 90s. Wouldn't that be great, right? I was joking in our teacher service. I say, imagine. I was telling pastors, say, imagine if the sermons we gave from the 90s generated like 20 million pennies. You know, even that, that would be great. Imagine that. Imagine the work that you did. In an interview that he gave, uh, Matthew Perry said this. I was convinced, talking about this fame and the success he had, he says, I was convinced it was the answer. I was 25, it was the second year of Friends, and eight months into it, I realized the American dream is not making me happy now. Not filling the holes in my life. I couldn't get enough attention, fame does not do it. What you think it's going to do, it was all a trick. Now, difficult that is. All of our teenagers here, I want to encourage you, you are in the race. You are called to be a Christian. This is not something adults do. This is not something just your teachers do or your parents do or the pastors do. It's you. You are called to run this race. 
And you will hear people around you, people at school, the way they talk, the words that they use, the things that they want to do. And you will be tempted to go follow along, but you are called to run this race. Teenagers, college students, you are called to run this race. And you will be surrounded by people talking about big dreams of academics and having jobs and getting paid and, and doing these successes and people admiring those who seems like they are achieving so early, so quickly. But more than that, the race that you are in is that you are a Christian before you are a student, before you do anything else. This is your goal. This is your race. Professionals, this is your race. More than success in the workplace and moving up and so on and so forth. The race is to be a Christian first, to live for the gospel first. Parents of young ones, this is your race. This is a time in your life you will have an influence, a short time in your life. Well, you have an influence to try to make your children, the children that God has given you, to make them followers of Jesus Christ. And somehow, in the imperfect way, we have to point them to Jesus Christ. I heard someone say that you can lose a whole legacy of faith in a family in a half a generation. Think of a half a generation. And you can see that today where your influence might be age 1 through 10 and after that as they grow up their foundations already set, their beliefs are already set, they will go in the way that they want and you have this short time and we catch ourselves during that time, often, saying, oh, do all the things that are fun. Do all the things that are pleasurable. And soon as a little one says, oh, man, I don't want to go to church. My friend's not there. I, I don't want to go there. This is more fun. And the moment we start caving in, what we are teaching is what's fun, what's enjoyable for the moment, is greater than the everlasting faith that we have in Christ. And so there is a tension for parents as the children are doing activities and playing sports and dance and all these things that are wonderful somehow to say hey we still have to go have worship we might have missed today but tonight we're going to turn on youtube we're going to sit there we're going to have worship let's open your bible we got to have worship and to keep drawing to do the right thing not just to do the fun things the things that will come against us is not persecution but it will be pleasure and it will be fun. And it's just in a half of a generation. We could lose our faith in this way. And so this is our race. My purpose, your purpose is in this short life that we have. Somehow to live out the gospel. Point people to Jesus. Be available to give answers. And let them know the faith that you have when you're asked. Now, in this race, secondly, you have to plan for the race. This is the picture that we have here, that there is a plan. It doesn't happen just casually. Verse 25, it says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Let's pause there. In all things. So the ones that were running for the medal or the crown or the wreath, rather, um, it took over their whole lives in all things. We see it today in documentaries of famous athletes. They wake up early. They exercise an X amount of hours. They get up when it's cold and they want to lay in bed. They don't eat certain things. They eat certain things. And they have to now exercise themselves in, in self-control. 
for this. This means that they are planning for the race. You can imagine a marathon. You don't just get up one day and say, I think I'll go run the L.A. Marathon. You can't just get up and just go run this way. You, you prepare. In the same way, we have to be prepared and we have to plan and be strategic about how we live, why we do what we do. See, we are thinking about being with God and going to heaven or meeting God, and we think that is so far off and we don't think about that. But really, our life is a preparation to go meet Him. Exercise, self-control, that word, agonizomai. Agonizomai, we got the English words, agony or agonize. It's not easy. But the winner of the race knows it's not easy, but somehow for them, it's a form of pleasure. It's something they like to do. What does this mean for us? Be intentional with your life, your precious life. Today, we all got an extra hour. Some of you, you didn't even realize you got an extra hour, right? Because you were just on your, on your phone, just it changes automatically. We got an extra hour. You just thought you were diligent today and woke up a little early. No, you got an extra hour. And you think of that as a gift. You say, wow, I got an extra hour. The richest person cannot buy it. The most intelligent person cannot produce it. It's life. And we have to think of how can I now be a steward of my life? How can I now plan out my life? On a very practical level, let me encourage you to give your best to God. First day of the week, Sunday, make it your church day. And it is, obviously, for those of us who are here. But make it your day. It's, it's church day. So you get invited to something. Well, it's church day. It's the day I go to worship. Or you get uh, invited to go and join something. Well, it's church. I got to get to church today somehow. The first day of the week I set aside in this way. The first hour of the day, let me encourage you. To give that thought to the Lord. You don't have to be legalistic about it. Whether it's the end of the day or the beginning of the day. But say, hey, I want to give. The first of all, your, all you make. Say, how can I use my resources? Let me set some aside first. Let me give to God. Let me save for myself. And let me live off the rest. And how important that is. You cannot wait until your passion grows for it. Your passion grows as you are disciplined in it. The athlete that is training we, day in and day out, week in and week out, their passion grows to go and prepare themselves for the race. They don't say, well, today I'm going to see if I feel like it. Today I'm going to see if that is my passion. No, they decide what the goal is, what the race is, and they do this. And as they do this, this becomes who they are. You know, it is Eugene Peterson who says, feelings are great liars. If Christians worshipped only when they felt like it, they would be there would be precious little worship. Feelings are important in many areas, but completely unreliable in matters of faith. And sometimes you say, oh, I don't feel like it. I heard this all throughout my life. You know, as I was, came to Christ, uh, committed my life to Christ in college, and then I've heard people say, oh, I don't feel like it anymore. I heard people, you know, in their teens, oh, I'm just burnt out. I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it. And now we have turned our feelings into uh, something that we 
almost admire about others all because they're being genuine. But yet it is our decisions that dictate our passions. It's not our passions that dictate who we are. So we plan for the race. We agonize to plan so that I could run this race and run it well. And thirdly, we got to understand the goal of the race. What is the goal of the race? Here is a, a picture of this. It says in verse 25, the second part, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So those who would run, those who would compete back in those days would get a, a wreath made out of leaves. And we've seen this before, and it was very perishable. A week Three days later, it's already fallen apart. And he uses that picture saying, they think it is so wonderful and they work so hard just for that, but you have something that is imperishable. Now it is going to be when we meet with the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be our reward. But let me highlight something else. Um, that God sees all that we do and he rewards us in his grace. He rewards us for the things that we have done. All the little good deeds that you have done, God watches and says, well done, good and faithful servant. All that he has allowed you to have, your time, your talent, your treasures, the way you work, the way you study, the way you raise your children, the way you love someone, forgave someone, the way you served that church, he sees all of it. Good job. It says here in Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. He doesn't overlook the work. So those of you who serve, those of you who came out last week, there was a group of men who, were, who cooked uh, something like uh, you know, 150 burgers and 150 or 200 hot dogs and hot links and all of this. Some of them, they lost what precious hairs they had on their hands. I saw that happening. Um, some of it, maybe their eyebrows as well, and they were working hard. It was, God saw that. A child eating inside might not come out and thank you, but somehow God saw that. Sometimes in the church, in the Christian church, we shun away from this. Someone says that we become paralyzed by the concept of grace. Because when we talk about grace, we'd say, oh, it's free, it's free, it's a free gift of God. So we don't want to seem like we're earning anything before God, and we don't. And so sometimes it paralyzes us, it makes us casual, and we don't do anything. It makes us passive. But we ought to be serving God because not only is He, the Lord Jesus, our crown, our reward, He will also reward us for the things that we have done. Now it is all in His grace in the big picture. He's allowed us to serve. He's given us the gifts to serve. So in a way it's a glorifying, not of us, but of him, ultimately. But he will remember all that you have done. I remember growing up um, in elementary school, my mom had a, uh, a, we had a liquor store in the heart of Oakland, and the name of the liquor store was Happy Market. And there was nothing happy about that place, but it was Happy Market, right? Um, and then we had a dog named Happy. There was a whole theme. And then uh, we kind of was moving on up, sold it, moved, and decided to open, uh, my mom opened the dry cleaners. And guess what the name of the cleaners was? Happy, right? Um, and after school, I had a job that um, now in hindsight I realize it's uh, illegal child labor. But um, at that point, I, I, work, I would come and work. And my job was simple. 
all the clothes that were dropped off, I had to dig through the pockets. I think about that. It's real dirty, right? These are the dirty clothes. I had to dig through the pockets. And my mom said, any money you find, any kind of coins you find is yours. Because the paper money, you turn it in, right? <laughs> and I assumed at that time it maybe went back to the person, but I'll have to ask her if it went where it went. I said, oh, I found the dollar. Okay, put it over here. Oh, I found the nickel. You can have it, right? That's how it was. And I would gather the coins for a year or whatever. And I remember I had bags of coins. This is before credit cards and everything was so accessible. So people carried pockets of change. And it would be in jackets and coats and pants and so on. And I remember gathering several bags of coins. And I remember telling my mom, I'm going to buy you dinner. Let's go out to dinner. Now, um, I, I, this is probably worth 3 $5, right? And so we go out to dinner and say, what should we eat? And even at that point, let's go eat sushi, right? Um, think about that. I said, we're going to pull a rice. Anyway, so we went and said, we're going to go eat sushi. And I brought this change, and it was this big event that Steve was buying dinner, and I brought this change. I said, I'm going to buy this. And um, when the bill came, I wasn't really thinking. I, it felt like I had a lot of money, but I, I could see my mom paying for it separately. And then she thanked me for it. And she was bragging, oh, you know, Steve, he, he used this change and bought dinner. And I was uh, kind of proud of that. Now, as a grown-up, I see that. And we have grown-ups, moms and dads, you've been there. A child saves the money that, well, that you've given them. Or the child goes to mom and says, mom, let's go pitch in for dad's gift. But then that's all the same money that mom and dad earn. And they buy you something, and you say, oh my gosh, thank you, and you give them a hug. And really, maybe that's a picture of heaven. But there is still a reward there. That the work that we do from God's perspective, he says, oh, it's, it's cute. Oh, it's endearing. Oh, you've tried your best. It doesn't get you into heaven. It doesn't save you from sin. But yet, somehow, God sees it, and he rewards it. And when we get to that place, you know, we've all seen pictures of whether it's Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods or LeBron James hugging the trophy. The Olympic athletes kissing the medal. And it's not that that object is worth so much, but something about winning it made it worth it. And you see the losers often crying in sadness because they couldn't win the prize. And it is at that moment that Paul is trying to get us to look. Look at the winner. Look how passionate they are. And it was all worth it. Waking up at 5 a.m. and watching what they eat and running and doing all the exercises and ignoring their friends, sleeping, all of that was worth it when they got the prize. That, how much more? Will this imperishable prize be of value to you? I love the story of the late Dallas Willard, um, someone who had impacted this generation with his thoughts as a philosopher, as a Christian philosopher from USC, Dallas Willard, when he was passing away, as he was taking his last breath, uh, those who were with him report that it was as if, and they, they talk about how his moving from this life to the next was almost seamless. And that's what the Christian life is. It's almost seamless. And the last two words uh, that he said, or last two phrases that he said, 
they said it was, it's like as if he was going into heaven and he said the two phrases, thank you, thank you. And the person who shared that said it wasn't directed at anyone in the room, but it was as if he is telling someone there, thank you, thank you, I get to come. And it was trans- there was no transition, it was seamless. He had moved into now a place where he was being rewarded. And that's how he passed. There is a cost, fourthly, the cost of running the race. You look at verse 26 and 27. Paul says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, verse 27. But I discipline my body, keep it under control. Um, And he talks about this. These are costly phrases, descriptions. To run, he says, I don't run aimlessly. To run aimlessly is like the children that's asked to go outside and play And there is no aim. There is no purpose. It is a ship that is outside in the ocean without a rudder, just going. It is a person running a race not knowing where the finish line is. There is a cost to this. And he says in verse 27, I discipline my body. Keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul's, one commentator says, Paul's Christianity is purposeful. There is a cost. There is a discipline. Discipline is saying no to things for the greater good. Saying yes to certain things, saying no to certain things because I want to live out my faith. Saying no to certain choices saying no to the way that certain people might talk or the words that might use and say, no, I'm not going to say those things. I'm not going to live this way. That is discipline. The gospel is something that is free. And oftentimes when we think about going to heaven and Jesus Christ, we think, what is the easiest way? What's my ticket in? And we can go and think about going to heaven and meeting Jesus as What's the right phrase? I said a prayer. Is this it? And I'm going to go and do as I please. It is free. But also it is costly. Yesterday I officiated a wedding for one of our beloved couples here. And the highlight of the wedding is the time when the couple shares their vows. And I love witnessing that. It is often very emotional, and they are sharing some very deep words. And they finish the vow as I, they do the repeat after me, until death do us part. This is my promise to you, until death do us part. They're saying, I'm going to give everything to you. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be there. For richer, for poor, sickness and in health, till death do us part. Um. You know, the, the wife didn't say to the husband, the husband didn't say to the wife yesterday, so what is the minimum requirement for me to get married? Like, what's the least I can do to enter into this marriage? How many nights do I really need to be home? Like, how many days can I go meet my friends? Or, no, they say, I want to give all of myself to you. And yet the covenant was free. And yet they give all of themselves in this way. And I want to challenge you. To not be so casual or comfortable or pleasure-seeking, but to say, what can I give? 
What will it cost me? Waking up earlier to serve, uh, giving my attention to other people instead of myself, uh, giving up some of the money that God has given to me and being generous in this way. What does it cost me? What does God mean to me? The greatest American theologian in history, Jonathan Edwards, while he was a student at Yale, had written a list of resolutions that he would live by. And one of them, he says, resolve to live with all my might while I do live. I believe he was 17, 19 years old. Resolve to live with all my might while I do live. God calls us and wants us to give of ourselves to him and his cause. Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. All of your strength. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Luke 13.24, strive to enter by the narrow gate. There's a runner back in the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City, John Stephen Aquari. He was representing Tanzania, and they were running the race here and the, the marathon. And this is all over YouTube, and I was going to show it, but I decided just to tell you the story. He represents Tanzania. He comes to run the race. He has a bad fall in the beginning of the race. He dislocates his knee, and he hurts his shoulder in this fall. And he bandaged himself up, and he got back up, and he hobbled all the way through. And there's a glorious scene. He comes into the stadium, and it's an hour after the awards ceremony had already finished. And the stadium is maybe 10% full, 5% full. And all of a sudden, they see him emerging bloody, and he turns into the stadium, and he starts hobbling in. And what's left of the people, they start standing up and giving him a standing ovation. He finishes the race dead last, and when they come up and they ask him, the interview asks him, why did you continue? And he said these famous words, my country didn't send me 5,000 miles to start the race, they sent me to finish the race. And he finished the race. I want to encourage us today, whether you're a teen or whether you've been walking with Christ since you were a teen, to continue the race. And when it gets hard, it's supposed to. And when we lose focus to pause and think about our Lord Jesus Christ, think of him waiting for us with those words, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that we as a body of believers, as a family, as a church family, would continue this race together. And at times we would pick one another up and continue the race. At times we would cheer someone on. At times we would hold hands and say, I need your help. But we would run this race together. And we would run it faithfully. To live for the gospel, there is nothing greater. This is the race that's set before you. Let's pray together. What a privilege it is, Lord, to run this race. You call us to live this Christian life. You've called all of us somehow, various points, Lord. Some of us were born into the church. Some of us, we have just encountered you. Some of us, we've been walking with you for 
decades. We've been walking with you since uh, we were little. And we continue on. So, Lord God, there are many things that uh, tempt us, that distract us. There are many other races that look far more enticing and important. There are many times, Lord, we confess our heart is cold and our passions are elsewhere. But, Lord God, we, we do this still. Because you are worth it. You are that prize. You are that treasure in the field. It is worth selling all to go and buy that field. And so, Lord, that is our prayer. By your grace, we run this race. And we are grateful and humble to do so, God. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.